High Noon. This is News Talk. Now we've got loads coming up for you in the next couple of hours, so do stay with us. But I was having a look at the papers today and yesterday we talked a little bit about alcohol. We talked about the fact that there is talk of doing away with the free G&Ts with your blow dry in the hairdressers. And I said I thought that was a crazy idea because that's actually how we should be encouraging people to drink. The one drink, not the 12 drinks. But today in the papers they're talking about whether or not we should be allowed to advertise alcohol and how much advertising on uh, alcohol there should be and whether or not, of course, as well uh, we should be having lovely Christmas ads and all that for alcohol I think it's a no-brainer on this one too of course you shouldn't be allowed to al- advertise alcohol advertising is for one reason and one reason only to drink more you only advertise you only spend the money on the advertising uh, in order to promote a product and get people to, to drink more and I think you know, I was in traffic myself this morning outside a pub in Donnybrook and there was a big, huge ad for Heineken and it said the Heineken Rugby Club and it was a lovely house with lights coming out of the windows and a big stadium behind it and a big bottle of Heineken over the top of it associating Heineken and rugby so closely together. I mean, obviously there's Heineken Cup and all that kind of stuff too. But do we really want that? Do we really want to associate booze with health or booze with sport or booze with sexiness? I would suggest we don't because we do have a problem with drink and the one drink isn't the problem. As I say, it's the 12 drinks and advertising is part of selling that. Uh, let me know what you think on 53106. The other thing I would say is people are saying, but what about if we lose the lovely Guinness ad or the lovely Budweiser horsies with uh, the bells at Christmas? Do you know what? Christmas is a time of tradition. We love all the ads. My favourite one is Penny's has a whole lot of things for Christmas. We'll, they'll be replaced by other Christmas ads. Uh, I don't think we'll have too much suffering coming up to Christmas for not looking at people with snow falling on their heads outside the, the Guinness um storehouse or whatever but anyway look let me know what you think 53106 should we be able to advertise uh, booze should we be able to associate booze with sporting events those kinds of things is that a good idea for young people is that a good message I think not I think we should be able to drink I'm not talking about nanny stating but promoting drink is a very different thing and let me know what you think because I think it is an important issue in this country in particular now Last weekend, the International Association of Free Thought Congress took place in Paris and one of the speakers was Michael Nugent, who is the chairperson for Atheist Ireland. And one of the issues that Michael discussed in his address to the Congress was the right to die debate. And after watching his own wife pass away from a terminal illness, Michael has been an advocate for the right to die, saying that he thinks this is one of the most important rights in an ethical society. And Michael is with me now live in studio to talk to me about this. Michael, thanks for coming in. Good afternoon. Can you, I suppose, lay out your stall a little bit and tell me, and obviously you have your own personal uh, experience of this, which I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry to hear, but also you, you have, you know, a, an ethical position on this. What's your position on, on the, the notion of the right to die? Well, different people who are dying <clears throat> will have different ideas themselves about how they want to die. And if somebody wants to stay alive as long as possible, they should have the best possible medical resources to enable them to do that. Nobody should be forced to die earlier than they want to. And equally, if somebody, for their own reasons, if they're of sound mind and they're terminally ill and they want to die peacefully, reliably and at a time of their choosing in order to avoid unnecessary suffering, they should have that right. And neither right cancels out the other. They're they're both equally important. Yeah, and and I, I... Look, I have I have slightly softened my position on this over the years because I have always been against the right to die because my fear has been that the right to die 
can become for people maybe wanting to protect their loved ones, maybe not wanting to be a, a burden to people and all that. The right to die can become the duty to die. And I think that's the concern that most people who are not in favour of the right to die express, that that, that express that there's a pressure on the, the the person maybe who's sick to, to shuffle off sooner than they should. So they don't. That, so it's not about their suffering, it's about their relative suffering. Is that not of concern to you? Well, it doesn't seem to be the case in reality. I mean, the, there are places where the right to die has been around for several decades, like Oregon, where the statistics show that there hasn't been any increase in dying that, that of, the, of that level that people would be concerned about vulnerable groups. There is the fact that in any case, uh, it's not about the act of dying. It's about the peace of mind that you have while you are still alive. When Anne, my wife, made preparations to die, uh, if, if she needed to in order to avoid unnecessary suffering, her quality of life absolutely soared after that. And for the remaining year of her life, she was able to enjoy that year in a way that she wouldn't have if she didn't have that option available. And most people who make those preparations, and I don't mean even just take the decision, but I mean who, may, who either obtain the substances needed to do it or make a booking in, in Dignitas in Switzerland or whatever. Most people who make those preparations actually die naturally. So, uh, and I don't want to personalise it too much, but I think it's an important point because you're somebody who's experienced this. So, so your late wife, she had a decision made in her head that should her suffering become unbearable in some way that she was going to take action. And that gave, are you saying that that in itself gave her a relief? Absolutely. That, that yeah. That security, if you like, that that was there for her. It is. It it's almost option. like, uh, it's, uh, to use an analogy, it's almost like an insurance policy. You know, she, she knew that, that if it came to it and if it became unbearable, that she wouldn't have to go through the unnecessary suffering. And knowing that probably staved off the suffering in many ways. I, I, I completely hear what you're saying. And I do. And I, and I know of, of uh, a family myself who, who have a, a, a child who's suffering a lot with an illness that's very painful and may well end up uh, not surviving it and all the kind of stuff. And I can see the point because they have said, you know, in front of me, you wouldn't let a dog go through this. And and, and I, I get it entirely. I do. But I suppose some of the concerns are around the fact that hard, hard cases make hard laws or bad laws, maybe. And bringing something like this in for the few people who might want to take it up, can have a detrimental effect on the many. There have been studies, there have been studies, and I've talked to you about this before, Michael, so I thought I'd better get my studies right. There's been studies of, of, of for example, assisted dying in the Netherlands where they anonymised the physicians. And in order to, they, they do have assisted dying in the Netherlands, but it's supposed to take, it's supposed to only take place provided that somebody uh, who is competent and has an unrelievable suffering makes a voluntary request to a physician. So that, that's that they're the criteria. And then that physician having this patient come to them with the request has to talk to another physician and then they have to make a decision. And so it's, it's supposed to have these safeguards. But they've studied this and there's been studied this, this guy, Dr. Hendon from the States, has studied a lot of cases over there and they did big studies and they were anonymised so that the doctors who, who answered the studies, one, Nobody knew who they were. And two, is they, they were guaranteed immunity from, from any prosecution. And some of the stuff was, was pretty poor. Like one, one physician said he had a, a nun who was very unwell and he felt her religion was preventing her from agreeing to euthanasia. So he felt justified and compassionate in ending her life without telling her he was doing so. Uh, another one, a wife 
um, offered a husband a choice between a care home or euthanasia because she said she couldn't care for him anymore and he opted to do it because of uh, the fear of going into a care home. Another one, there was um, a a mother of, of a boy who had died and was very depressed and, and requested assisted dying for her depression. A psychiatrist granted it within four months, which is a very short space of time. And, and I think it's very probably the case that over time that that woman may have come back and not wanted to die because she was in the aftermath of grief. And then there's lots of stuff just about uh, physicians here saying, I ended the life of a patient with breast cancer because it could have taken a week before she died and I needed a bed. And also about the fact that instead of it being a competent patient volunteering the request to you, lots and lots and lots of cases, uh, up to a third of physicians saying they were offering it before they were asked about it. Now, those are the worries because what it says in that study and there was three studies there was one in 1990, 1995 and 2001 all done on the Dutch system. They say that the safeguards that you want to have in place, which are which sound very reasonable, a competent patient, unrelievable suffering and a voluntary request, that they're almost unenforceable and in practice those criteria are not adhered to. Is that not a genuinely significant worry if we were to bring something like that in? Well, I mean, of course it is. and But it's an argument for ensuring that the safeguards are properly policed. It's not an argument for making people who are suffering uh, go through that suffering unnecessarily. And the, the other point there is that in, in many ways, it's like the similar to the abortion debate in that it's going to happen anyway. People, people who are terminally ill will make their own decisions about ending their own lives and they're not going to make their decisions based on what the courts say. They're going to act on their their, their own moral compass and their own compassion. And, and what's happening is that compassion and love are being frustrated by by laws that don't take the, the humanity into account. So it's going to happen anyway. If it is legalised, there is more chance that people can discuss it openly with people without, without unnecessary pressure, without feeling that they're acting illegally and so they, they might end up getting unreliable information. So it, I agree with you completely. The safeguards need to be they there. Do. But, but But that is an argument for trying to figure out how best to implement the safeguards. It's not an argument for for not having the right to assisted dying. But Michael, what if it is the case that it's almost impossible to have proper safeguards? Because a lot of that study w- would suggest that euthanasia or assisted dying or any of those, th- whatever you'd like to call it, that it's been put out there as an option for people rather than it be something that people are looking for themselves. And then that does become an issue for people because if it is a suggestion that you might shuffle off a week sooner because there's a pressure on beds for, and God knows we have a pressure on beds in this country and I'd have a significant worry about that or if it is a case that we are, are, are you know suggesting to people that this is an option because sure why wouldn't it be and all that kind of stuff the chances are yes people will take it up and some of them may be people who could have actually maybe been made comfortable and not died sooner than they were going to die naturally and still been comfortable but but due to fear or due to a sense of responsibility or due to a sense of trying to protect families. Do you see that there is a possibility that in order to offer that as a solution to to a, a small number of people who genuinely feel that that's what they want and that they have a right to it, that we run a risk of I don't want to be catastrophic, so I'm not going to say something stupid like a floodgate, but that we run a risk of other people's lives being ended sooner because we've now skewed the system to make this a more acceptable end to people's lives. 
Well, if you take your first point, if there's a lack of hospital beds, then that should be addressed by more investment in healthcare, regardless of whether or not people are. I won't argue with you that you're dead right. So, so I, I, I'm completely supportive of, of uh, people having the right to the best possible medical care, regardless of whether or not they're dying. But in in terms of uh, people having the availability of people to even discuss it with if it's legal. At the moment it's happening anyway, but people may not have reliable information. It's, it's, it's like if you take the similar arguments were made about, the, uh, about suicide when suicide was legalised um, or decriminalised. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the strong arguments for that is, is that if it is legalised, then people will be able to discuss it more openly. People will get more reliable information and you will have less chance of the worst case outcome, which is somebody trying to take their life failing and ending up alive with brain damaged. So, so overall, in terms of a combination of individual human rights and I think the balance of compassion and empathy and, and reciprocity and fairness and justice, I think that the right to, to choose assisted dying combined with strong safeguards is the, the best for individuals and for society. I, I can see how it might be the best for certain individuals, but, but I still have some ethical concerns. Another ethical concern, of course, is around who is going to assist people in, mm. in their dying, because for a lot of physicians, presumably that would be quite the ask, you know, to, to sort of move from the, the, the main pillar or tenant of medicine is to do no harm. But to move from that to to actually accelerating or speeding up the death of a patient is for a lot of people um, an abhorrent idea, I suppose, and, and a very difficult one. Now, I can see what you're arguing on the grounds of compassion. I can. But you mentioned suicide there. And the reality of it is, is most people can probably, not everybody, but most people could probably um, end their lives by suicide themselves should they want to. And, and, and we're in very careful territory here because, we, you know, I know this is a very sensitive subject. But to move it from that to assisted suicide is quite a step. Well, Mary Fleming took a court case about that because uh, she was in a position where she wouldn't have been able to take her own life if she wanted to. And the case that she took to the courts was that you that suicide is legal, but that she was being discriminated against on the grounds of her uh, disability because she wouldn't be able to exercise that right without assistance. Now, the courts found in that case, they, what everybody knows is they found that there isn't a constitutional right to either suicide or assisted dying. Yep, yep. But what they also said, and the, the government and the parliament have completely ignored this, is that they said that the parliament does have the right to enshrine that, that, that right by, by law as long as it puts in place sufficient safeguards and it was the the courts as is typical in Ireland was were more or less telling the government to do that and were saying that in the particular case of Mary they assumed that the DPP would look compassionately on anything that took place in that case I know and and and, and, and I do you know what it's not an argument for for winning and losing a debate. I think I think it actually has to have a lot of sensitivity around it, and lots of people are getting involved with this. Michael, many people uh, would be fully in agreement with you. Um, we all have the right to live, but no right to be allowed to die. 
why you would never allow an animal to suffer yet you would allow a fellow human being to suffer hypocrites and, and I think that's that's quite a, a, a common uh, thread here and another one here from Paul and Kilcool as a Catholic I believe God is the only one who can decide when we die however not everyone believes anymore so if you want to arrange your own death well so be it but strict protocols will have to be brought in so relatives can't decide they want the inheritance quicker and I think that's a very good point too there shouldn't be any win for people left behind it should it, that has to be uh, decoupled Um Another one here says human beings should have the right to die and the right to live. Too often death is at the discretion of a medical person. Uh, the DNR order and the DNR is the do not resuscitate order or the withdrawal of IV fluids or the active treatment. These decisions are nearly often made without the consent or the involvement of the person and this is so wrong. A doctor or a nurse should not have the right to decide when I die. Who gave them that right? And last one I'll say on this one is uh, if I want to go to my lawyer uh, and put it in my will that if I'm suffering too much sure, and I want to die surely it is my right and that's from Jer. Currently isn't, Ger, but that's the way it is. Look, my sincere thanks uh, to Michael Nugent. Um, I think it is a a, a very, Michael Nugent, of course, uh, of Atheist Ireland, but I think it is a very significant debate that we need to be having. And I think we will presumably hear hear more of this again. So thank you for that. And do let us know what you think as well. 53106. Coming up after this, um, should the diaspora's kids be allowed to go to college for cheap? I know. This is News Talk. This is High Noon and this is Kira Kelly and you're very welcome back to us. Lots and lots of you getting in touch, uh, particularly um, on that last item about the right to die. Bart says, this, if passed, will only lead to the unspeakable, the culling of old age pensioners, regardless of circumstance. God, Bart, I hope not, because that would be horrific, wouldn't it? Um, And loads of you getting in touch. Uh, Alcohol always excites us, doesn't it? Everyone wants to talk about alcohol. Uh, someone here says the biggest growing problem is drugs yet it has no advertising on TV or radio stopping the advertising of drink won't have any effect on consumption and Darren says Hi Kira, I would agree with you that free alcohol at the hairdressers is encouraging the right kind of consumption uh, but on advertising I believe lifestyle adverts should be banned and the only type of alcohol adverts that should be uh, is alcohol associated with sporting events because there would be a net benefit to society so that's very interesting Darren only wants alcohol uh, advertised in conjunction with sports and Shane in Rathoth says love the show Kira, but disagree with you on the drinks ads I honestly don't think the consumption of alcohol will diminish a single jot if its advertisement was banned tomorrow if that was the case, Shane, why do they bother spending so much money on it? That would have to be the question because they do spend money. They spend hundreds and thousands, if not millions on it. And they don't strike me as people who uh, would spend money without good cause. Now, Senator Billy Lawless has announced his pre-budget submission for the returning immigrants and he is calling for more universities to adopt a structure which would see the children of Irish immigrants Emigrants only subjected to EU fees and not international fees for third level education. In other words, if you go away and you have your kids away, that when they come back, they aren't treated like they're Australians or Americans or wherever you went. Um, and Senator Lawless joins me now in the studio to discuss this. Senator, thanks for coming in to us. Yeah, thank you, Kira, for having me. This seems like, on the surface of it at least, a very sensible proposal. 
Yeah, I, th- I think it's a very small uh, request. You know, I mean, there are many requests for returning immigrants, but this is a, this is a major bone of contention for a lot of them because a lot of them went, and maybe not necessarily by, uh, the, some of them went by choice uh, with through intercompany um, transfers or whatever, and their kids now are at university age. And even the, some of their children are good, are high achievers as well. And they would qualify for uh, American scholarship abroad, but because they're Irish citizens, they can't avail of it. And then when they come back here, they're paying full international fees. And are they paying full international fees currently, Billy? Because if they are Irish citizens, these kids, do they not get an EU exemption anyway? No, because they have to be in school for, you know, in in 2014-15, Rory Quinn announced in March 14 uh, that children of Irish immigrants would only be subject to EU funds. Uh, and not international if if uh, they had spent five years uh, in school at any given point. But that only started from the 2014-15 academic year. Right, so there could be people out in Australia for 12 or 15 years. Their kids haven't got the required number of years in school. The parents would like to come home. They Maybe they were... And they could be high flyers. They could be those kind of tech people or whatever who moved for jobs. Or just our ordinary people or as moved well. moved for a recession. You know, unfair, we, we don't want any discrimination no, no, whether no, you're no. high or whatever. But I'm just trying to make the point that it's unfair and it's, we're not talking about a large number of people. Plus the fact we want their parents back because we want high skilled people coming back. We lost a lot of high skilled people. We did. The brain uh, drain. T- absolutely. And they want to come back. And we're, we have about 400 a week coming back to Irish citizens returning to this country. Which is actually a, a, a great kind of feel-good story because we would love the people who went away but maybe didn't, some people travel by choice but there was people who went because they couldn't get work and all the kind of stuff and we'd love to welcome them back. But when you say that 400 a week returning and maybe those 400 a week could have two kids or whatever, I know you're saying it's a, it's a relatively small thing. Do we have any idea what this would cost to the Exchequer? I don't and I'm working with the department uh, as we speak because we're trying to get, it's very difficult to, to know even with the the number of Irish undocumented abroad there's a lot of controversy about that figure now as well Uh, and I understand why there is so it's very hard but it's not a large number Kira. and we we, I mean they deserve it I I want a living playing field that's all we're looking for here and you could see how it would be a massive disincentive if you're a couple in your 50s and you'd like to come home to Ireland and your kids are in their late teens or they're in their 20s or what have you and they want to go to university but you're going to be paying and and we know that the international fees for university I mean university fees have been in in the the press this week because Leo Varadkar was talking about them and talking about whether or not there'd be student loans or whether or not there would be contributions so they're they're probably going to go up anyway but whatever Irish students pay and I think currently it's around three grand they pay as as a registration fee that may go up but international students can pay 30 and 40 grand can't they? And can you imagine I live in Chicago um and the, the cost of university there is forty to $60,000 a year. People have come out of college debt in the United States and they're paying until the day they die. Quarter of a million at we, least. We certainly don't want that happening here in Ireland. No. You know, because we pride ourselves in our education system here and giving a good education to our children. No, absolutely. And so, so what you're looking at is, is people who maybe who want to come home, they could have two or three kids, but they obviously want their kids to get an education wherever they are. But they could land into Ireland as Irish citizens and three kids in college could cost them 120 grand. Absolutely. Okay. And, and that's not fair. It's not right. It's not fair, but it's also a total disincentive to come and home. And we want our people back. And this has happened throughout the last 200 years. The Irish people went away 
a lot of them stayed. I, a lot of people weren't by choice. I, I immigrated by choice. But uh, a lot of people didn't have a choice. They had to go. And they want to come home. They always, immigrants always regard Ireland as their home, no matter how long they're away. A lot of people get involved in this, Billy. Uh, one person says, on with regard to the diaspora kids going to college on the cheap, it's not really on the cheap, but they're getting <laughs> EU fees. And in fairness, I said on the cheap. But right. but but no, this person says, no issue with that as long as the diaspora pay tax in Ireland. And presumably they will oh, be paying tax uh, in uh, Ireland. Of, of course, of um, course. We're not looking for any freebie whatsoever, not at all. But but Alan here says, and, and this is a very good point too, he says, never mind the children of emigrants, returning emigrants themselves who are Irish citizens are not eligible for the EU fees. Okay, this sounds mad. My wife and I lived in Australia only for three years which isn't no, very long. No. We returned to Ireland last year and she was deemed ineligible for EU fees for a postgraduate course in TCD. That well, seems, that, that's that seems crazy too, doesn't it? That, that is wrong, so it is. And, and I would love to take up his case there and, and people in similar situations. You also have the spouses of partner, partners and spouses of Irish citizens coming back. They can't work for at least six, maybe up to 12 months before they get a work permit. We have to reduce that waiting period, so we do. Someone else here says, Billy, students, okay, but why should they get free study when no taxes or contributions are made by their parents over the years? First of all, it wouldn't be free. It would be the EU rate of fees, which which, which Irish and EU students pay. And you have to bear in mind when you say that there are people who can come to college here and we're not saying that they shouldn't at all, but who are Spanish or Italian or whoever they are, who don't pay taxes here either, but they're entitled to as EU citizens. So, because so why of should, EU citizens, yeah, So exactly. why shouldn't this be any different? And another one here says, hi, Kira, can you ask this question of Billy, please? My son lives in France. We're both Irish uh, and I have a French mother. So when the time comes, can he go to college in Ireland without all the additional costs? Presumably, yes, as EU students. As EU students, more than likely, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, there's a lot of anomalies out there. We just have to, I want to streamline it, streamline it so that we have an, e- an equal playing field for everybody. You you obviously do live over in Chicago, Billy, but but this is one aspect of, of, of removing maybe a barrier to returning home for people who would like to. And, it, and you know, mm. and I, don't, I think there's few enough people that wouldn't want people to come back to Ireland who left during the recession or whenever, who, who were kind of forced away through, through, through work or, or, or choose to come back for any reason. Are there other barriers to, to moving your life back to Ireland there ha- are, having left? One of the big issues I hear are driving licences. If your driving licence is out of date, you, you've had a driving licence when you left here and if it's out of date after 10 years, you have to come if you come back, you have to reset uh, your the, your uh, driving test and put your in sign up on your window. You have a driving license in the country you're in. I mean, I think it's it, there's a huge anomaly out there. You should be able to transfer your American or your Australian or your Canadian license for an Irish license when you come out here. Now, okay. I understand in the States that we've every state has their own licenses. That's fine. Well, we can we can go state by state uh, and have reciprocity. Okay. Because I did my driving test when I went to Chicago and I did a, a, a full a written test, a full eye test and about an hour's driving test before I got my licence. Okay. So there's lots of little anomalies that are mm-hmm. barriers to people coming back. But as you say, 400 a week are doing so. Yeah, I know they are because they want to come home. This is their home. But they find when they're, someone got an awful shock actually when they come back that these things, they, to open a bank account, uh, you have to give uh, proof of evidence of, 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 of permanent residency. It's very difficult for some of them because they're only co- have come back. So they wouldn't have a utility bill or whatever. And then the PPBS numbers, uh, some of them have, anyone, a lot of them would have, would have them before they went out, but the children of them
them wouldn't have them. So there and the social services have to be available for some families as well when they come home. We have to look after those people also. So there's a lot of little niggly things that I'd like to streamline and we have a kind of a one stop shop. a website and, and uh, an yeah. Irish website, government website, with a one-stop shop for all of these issues and when re- for our returning immigrants. Absolutely. My, my, my thanks there to Senator Billy Lawless. And of course, we actually need these people to come back to. We have a growth economy currently. We actually need workers. So we want these people to come back. They're our own. They're, they're the Irish who, who, who left because they had no choice. We, we need to become welcoming of these people. I think I think we do need to facilitate that. Um, thank you so much, Senator Lawless, for coming in to us. Coming up next, should the next bridge in Cork be named after a woman? Stay tuned. Hi, Noon. This, this is News Talk. And welcome back to High Noon here on News Talk with Kira Kelly. Now, Sonia O'Sullivan is one of the suggestions being put forward for the naming of a new bridge between Merchants Quay and Patrick's Quay in Cork. And at last night's Cork City Council meeting, Fianna Fáil councillor Dr John Sheehan put forward the proposal that the bridge should be named in honour of a Cork woman. And John joins me now on the programme to talk about this. You're very welcome to High Noon, John. Thanks, Kira. John, why specifically do you think this bridge should be named after a woman? Well, we've over 20 bridges in Cork, Kira, and uh, there's 20 of them named after males and one named after females. So I think as a matter of principle, before we even get to the issue of who it should be named after, we should establish the principle that it should be named after a woman. The only bridge in Cork named after a woman is Nanonagel Bridge, who is the founder of the presentation order, uh, and that's named after her. So I think... It's not redressing the balance, but it's a start in the process. Um, so, because sometimes what can happen is we can get uh, sort of sidetracked different people of different names and suggestions. So, I think if we can establish the principle that we should name it after a, a, a woman, then we can argue and open up the public consultation and get lots of suggestions. Off the top of my head, I mean, I can think of a number, numerous people such as Rene Buckley, Sandra Sullivan. Mother Jones, who led the trade union movement in America, Mary Ames, who helped a lot of Jewish uh, people survive the Holocaust during World War II, who was from Cork. And all these people showed leadership, and they were examples, you know, for others to follow. And I'm sure other people would have other names that they would suggest, but I think we should establish the principle in Cork City Council that we would name it after uh, a female. Then we should open up the public consultation, which gives the city and people who live in the city a sense of ownership of their city as well, that they would suggest names and then make the decision uh, on that basis. Was there, was there, broadly speaking, support at the council for this proposal? There was. I mean, it's very hard to argue against it, you no. know, that we should name it after another male. There's lots of very worthy males as well, but we have over 20 of them in the city. We have one female, and I think we need to start re- renaming things. And I think, you know, as a general principle, whether it's buildings and universities, whether it's bridges or roads, we need to start redressing some of that balance. Um, because it does send out a signal, you know, that you know all these people achieved huge things in their careers. Randy Buckley has 18 All-Ireland medals yeah. and huge leadership. And, you know, if you start naming things after people who've done tremendous things like that, it does send out a positive message to people. It does, absolutely. T- tell me this, why do you think it's so low, uh, the, the existing number of, of bridges named after women? One in 20, that seems like... Like, that's a very small 5% of bridges named after women. I think, I mean, historically, the whole city council was dominated by men. 
and some of them were, you know, named for, you know, people 100 years ago, or, you know, some of them were named after, like, Parliament Bridge and, you know, inanimate objects like that. Um, and I think men have just dominated things over the years, and uh, I think we men had blinkered vision, and, you know, the best person for the job was another man, and um, I think there was that culture, and I think we need to change that culture. Okay. What would you say to people who will no doubt be texting in in about two minutes saying this is tokenism, that these gender quotas for everything are PC gone mad and all that kind of stuff? What would you say to that? Well, I'd say, I mean, just look at the numbers, one versus over 20. So I don't think you can argue that it's a gender quota. And all these people that, you know, the people I, I, I just listed out there, they've all been outstanding in their own field. No one else has 18 All-Ireland medals in senior football, um, camogie and football. You know, so these are people who are who've shown huge leadership. The fact that they're not men doesn't mean that they shouldn't be named, uh, have something named after them in their home city. No, 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 absolutely. Do you think, because I have to say, I I think, um, John, that it's slightly depressing, to be honest, that we have to sort of shoehorn it into that, uh, that this bridge will be named after a woman so that the suggestions put forward are all female because if we left it open it's very possible a woman wouldn't get a look in. Do you, do you think the fact that in open competition even though there are, are wonderful Cork women obviously or, or international women or Irish women in general that, that a bridge could be named after they don't seem to get across the line when it's compared to men and that we have to do things like this in order to get a woman's name on a bridge is, is that kind of depressing? It is slightly depressing, but I think it has to do as well, Kira, with changing the mindset. Um, you know, whether it's in, say, medicine, where, you know, uh, loads of people were, 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 were doctors were male, yeah. and then you suddenly change the culture. Um, so you, you do have to start somewhere. And once you start changing the culture, and you see that the world doesn't collapse when you suddenly start yeah. naming things after females, you know, that the world can cope quite well, and that we're all better off as a result of it, then I think people get a bit more used to it, you know. It's a bit like maternity leave 20, 30 years ago. People were astonished that people took maternity leave. And now, you know, it's part of the norm practice and again it's all about changing you know changing culture so, um, so I think it's very hard to argue you know once some of these names come forward and if we have a public consultation it's very hard to argue against them and that's why we just want to establish the principle because like that I think it could get dismantled and get lost in the message then that you're competing one individual whether it is male or female versus another so I think if we establish the principle I think it starts the process of changing a bit of that culture Okay No I, I, and I think you're right and I think it is a cultural process and I think some people are resistant to it and I think other people think it's a good idea but one in 20 is, is a fairly abysmal uh, rate of, of, of bridges being named after women. Are there there any particular names you would favour yourself or do you feel that I, there's so uh, many? My, yeah, I mean, there are so many. I mean, uh, the top, my top three, I have to say, would be uh, Rene Buckley, 18 Ireland medals and just a huge leader and very modest person who I suspect might be embarrassed to <laughs> have something named after her. Uh, Mother Jones, who led the union movement in America, and there's a very successful Mother Jones festival in Cork every year. And again, it just sent out that message of fighting for people and standing up for people. And Mary Eames, who was a Cork person who worked in France during the war and saved uh, countless uh, number of Jewish people and, and actually has been honoured by the State of Israel um, and named a righteous person, um, but has no recognition in her own home city. So I think some of those 
I, th- I think, you know, and I think having the discussion about the merits of it, I think will bring some of these names to public consciousness and, and you know, and, and I think that's a good thing as well. Yeah, so the people of Cork may may throw yeah. up some things that, that yeah. nobody thought of. I mean, just, I suppose, one final point, Kira. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a local city councillor and when I was first running for election, um, my daughter, who was five at the time, um, when we were showing some different posters, males and females, she said, turned and said to me, she didn't realise women could go for election. You know, <laughs> and I just thought that was very profound. You know, that sends, sends a message yeah, we, to younger people, you know. We need to change that. Listen, my sincere thanks. That is Dr. John Sheehan of the Cork uh, City County Council talking about uh, the fact that maybe the next bridge in Cork will be named after a woman. And why don't you let us know what you think? Should it be? And if so, who should it be? Uh, let us know to 53106. I know. This is News Talk. What is the true power of a vision? Is it a window into the future and a genuine look at how the world is going to change? Or is it often the mad rambling of someone on the fringe of society, someone crying for attention? and willing to do anything to get it. This moment is about a vision. It was after 7pm on the evening of Monday, April 29th, 1991. Terry Wogan, the king of primetime, was in full swing on his BBC chat show. The early segments of the programme passed away with little incident. Snooker was at the height of its popularity in the UK, and two of the country's top players were set to make an appearance. The big draw on this night was the often controversial comedian Jim Davison. Well, I'll tell you what, I went out with a group of the Allied Irish Bank. I, I banked with them. We went out to this golf tournament and one said to me, had a man gone into a sandwich bar and he said, how much, how much are the cheese rolls? He said, they're two for a pound. Ooh. How much is one? <laughs> he said, 75p. <laughs> he said, I'll have the other one. Backstage stood a jittery and anxious man in scuffed white runners and a bright turquoise tracksuit. David Icke was there to promote his new book and because he wanted to share his message with the world. The same message he'd been brewing behind the scenes of his public life for several years, causing him much stress and strain. It wasn't long since he'd left working in the BBC. His contract wasn't renewed because he refused to pay Margaret Thatcher's poll tax. But he was back, in the spotlight, where he liked to be. He paced up and down the green room, waiting for his chance to go live. As his on-air time drew nearer, he felt more confident. On this night, he had the platform to spread his vision to the four corners of the globe. According to his book, The Truth Vibrations, the world as we know it is about to end. David Icke. He stepped out under the gleaming stage lights and shook hands with Wogan, grinning as he went. As the two reached their chairs, Ike picked up a sweet from a bowl on the table before taking his seat. His turquoise tracksuit was not his usual attire and it made a glaring contrast to Wogan's conventional dark checker jacket and beige slacks. With Ike's mouth full of sweets, Wogan immediately asked about the turquoise tracksuit. Ike seized the chance to start the interview on his terms. 
And the turquoise tur actually is the same frequency as an energy called um, love and wisdom. Therefore, when you wear that color, you attract it. When you wear black, you attract a color that is the opposite to love and uh, all the things we wish to bring to the earth. But and it attracts another kind of energy, yeah. which, is, which is very... Um, but this is very hard. This is very hard on priests and nuns, isn't it? Wogan was more than a little bemused. Just over a minute into the chat, he decided to take things up a gear. He asked a question. Let me get the story right. The press claim that you claim to be the son of God. Mm -hmm. Is that true? But more of that later. David Icke was born in 1952 in Leicester and was brought up on a council estate. Life in the early years after the war were drab and grey. The country was getting back on its feet again and people were settling for what they had. Young David loved football. He played in goal. He was good, very good, and dreamed of escaping his life in Leicester and playing on a big stage. In 1967, at 15 years old, he was spotted by a scout for Coventry City and was signed by the club. His life in the public eye had begun. After spending time on loan to several other clubs, he signed his first professional contract with Hereford United in 1971. He went on to make over 40 domestic appearances for Hereford and earned a comfortable living as their man in the number one jersey. But his success was not to last. In 1973, he was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. It had already spread throughout his body, to his arms, wrists, knees and ankles. At the age of just 21, he was forced to retire from football. He had an interest in the media and in journalism. He began to work as a sports reporter for the Leicester Advertiser and eventually worked his way up to national broadcasting. Ike made his television debut as a sports reporter for BBC's Newsnight in 1981. His relaxed and professional style appealed to the viewers and he soon became a household name. His star was on the rise and soon after in 1983 he achieved his career ambition by co-hosting the BBC's flagship sporting programme Grandstand. He had arrived. Leaving Liverpool stay five points clear in Division 1. It was also around this time he published his first book called It's a Tough Game, Son. It was a guide to aspiring young footballers about how to become a professional. But away from the limelight, things were very different for David Icke. He later wrote that this was the most depressing time of his life. Being on television was causing him great personal anguish. He felt some form of growing presence around him which contributed greatly to this. On a blustery March day on the Isle of Wight, Ike felt this presence calling him to a bookstand. He was drawn to a book entitled Mind to Mind by the psychic healer Betty Shine. It compelled him to visit Shine at her practice in Brighton in the hope of finding a cure for his arthritis. Instead, he found something altogether unexpected. It was during a healing session with Shine that Ike says he received his first message from the spirit world. It came in the form of a 12th century monk. Ike was told that he was the new incarnation of the spirit of the Godhead. He now believed that he was the physical embodiment of all the creative and living energy in the universe. Let's go back to the Terry Wogan show on the evening of Monday, April 29th, 1991. 
Terry had just asked his guest, David Icke, this question. Let me get the story right. The press claim that you claim to be the son of God. Mm-hmm. Is that true? The audience was silent and waiting for his response. Did David Icke truly believe he was the son of God? Yes, you see, the thing is that... Uh, see, it's, quite, it's quite funny, really. You know, 2,000 years ago, had a guy called Jesus sat here and said these same things, you would still be laughing. It's really, really funny that we've not really moved on that much. In this moment, David Icke became a punchline for every comedian in the country. He made predictions of violent geological events. He said they were necessary to ensure the earth didn't destroy itself and to prevent Satan's plans to control all creation. Yes, Satan's plans. But there is another being, the Bible refers to it as Satan, the real name is Lucifer, who is trying to take over creation. And because of the very important part this particular planet plays in the whole, actually destroying this planet would be a major step forward in that direction. According to Ike, all things in the world were created from and accountable to the force of love and wisdom known as the Godhead. It was all too much for the studio audience. As he spoke, they cackled and giggled. In the aftermath of the interview, the BBC were heavily criticised for allowing it to go ahead at all. Many criticised Wogan himself for being overly condescending. Survey the world, ladies and gentlemen. Is the force of love in control of this world, guiding this planet at this time? Of course not. The negativity, the thoughts that I'm talking about that are very destructive, are pouring out of this planet well, let me, let me um, every day. Was it, was it a great shock for you to discover this at 38? Well, I, th- I, think, the, <laughs> I, think, the wor- I think the word is gobsmacked. But again, again, you know the best way of removing negativity is to laugh and be joyous. So I'm delighted that there's so much laughter in the audience tonight. But no, um, it's a... But just let, just let me, just let me say this. They're laughing at you. They're not laughing with you. Fine. Ike's professional reputation was in ruins. Des Christie of The Guardian called the interview a media crucifixion. Ike soon fell out of the mainstream media and became one of the world's foremost professional conspiracy theorists. David Icke was not deterred by that night with Terry Wogan. Some would say it even encouraged him. He is still fond of sharing his theories on mankind, which include his claim that the moon is actually a man-made space station put into orbit by the world's intelligence agencies to control our thoughts. I kid you not. So what is the true power of a vision? Is it a window into the future and a genuine look at how the world is going to change? Or is it just the mad rambling of someone on the fringe of society, somebody crying for attention and willing to do anything to get it? I know what I believe. That's me in the corner That's me in the spotlight Losing my religion Trying I know This is News Talk. This is High Noon and this is Keir Kelly and we've loads coming up for you in the next hour. And you're sending in great suggestions about uh, the bridge in Cork that there is a conversation happening around whether or not it's going to be named after a woman. Brian from Knockline says, Kira, a consultation process is a waste of time and money. Just name the bridge 
get on with it. Jer uh, says, winning all Ireland medals is for yourself. Naming anything after somebody should be for the deeds done for others. And that was at the suggestion that it might be named after a Cork All-Ireland medal winner. Um, Sean says, hi, I think the new bridge in Cork should be called the A.D. Roach Bridge. She is a great and modest person that gives all to the improving of other people's lives. have to say, Sean, I did think of A.D. Roach myself. Uh, Another one here says, naming bridges after the fairer sex. Has that boat not already sailed? Surely it's all gender neutral today. And the last one on this, uh, which is my favourite one, is from Bart. It says, why not call it Bridget? That would cover all of it. (laughs) Brilliant, Bart. Thank you for that. Now, The Restaurants Association of Ireland has launched its impact report, which assesses the impact of a 1% increase in the VAT rate uh, and what that would would do to the sector. And they are expressing deep concern. And to explain why, I'm joined now by Adrian Cummins, who's the CEO of the Restaurants Association of Ireland, to tell us in advance of the budget why a 1% increase in VAT would be a bad idea for the sector. Adrian, you're very welcome to the programme. Good afternoon, Kira. Tell me a little bit about what your report is saying. Well, we uh, we commissioned a report in the last week to look at an impact if the 9% VAT rate went up by 1%. And that report was uh, done by Jim Power Economist. Uh, that shows that if you increase it by 1%, you're putting 6,000 jobs at risk, predominantly around the border region and the midlands and rural parts of Ireland. So in the context of Brexit where our tourism industry depend on UK visitors primarily, uh, we would see that the border region and the cross-border traffic from the north of Ireland to, to the south, northern tours, crossing over to Donegal, Cavamanan, that area. Uh, also, the British-UK visitor coming into Dublin and into the Midlands region particularly, we would see jobs at risk. Uh, the quantity of that that our economist has looked at is about 6,000 jobs in general. Uh, since the VAT rate was reduced in 2011, it's created between full-time and part-time jobs, about 54,000 jobs. So when you reduce VAT, you create jobs. When you increase VAT, you put jobs at risk. Uh, we can quantify that about 6,000 jobs will be at risk with a 1% increase. Okay, so 1% increase in VAT, a 4% you think loss in, in jobs. But this reduced rate of VAT that, that, that the hospitality uh, industry enjoys, the 9%, it was only ever supposed to be a temporary measure to keep you on your feet. And there are people who would say that what, what it actually did wasn't uh, sort of, you know, lower prices for consumers coming in or tourists or that kind of thing. What it actually did was it propped up profit margins for the people involved in the sector. When you look at the VAT rate for tourism, hospitality across Europe, 17 out of the 28 countries have 9 or less percent as being their VAT rate. So the 9%, in our opinion, is the correct rate of VAT for Ireland when we're trying to compete against other EU countries for tourism. Obviously, we've seen a marked increase in US visitors coming into Ireland. Uh, That has been a huge bonus to us. But if the currency exchange rates start to fluctuate, and we've seen it with sterling already, and you've seen it slightly with the dollar at the moment, or the market that has compensated for the decrease in, in our visitors, which is the US market, 
we're now at serious risk and the areas that have seen a huge benefit for this predominantly has been the wild Atlantic way the west coast and the, and, and the southwest uh, has seen huge amount of U- US visitors coming in so what we're saying to the government is we need to be prudent about this we need to make sure that this shouldn't be a knee-jerk reaction uh, of increasing the VAT rate by 1% or pandering to those that have been trying to target the hospitality industry um, there's businesses out there across the length and breadth of the country and they've seen the cost of doing business increasing over the last number of years. One of the things that people listening in might be thinking, Adrian, is the fact that hotels now are relatively expensive in in Ireland. And, and I think the room, even if you take Dublin out of it, mm-hmm. the average room cost is over €100. Euros. But if you add factor Dublin back in, it's higher now the price of getting a, 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 a bed in Dublin than it was at the height of the boom. So so it's not it's not cheap to stay in Ireland currently. Is there not an argument if if what you're saying is is that the border counties might be hit disproportionately or that rural Ireland and rural uh, restaurants and rural hotels might be hit disproportionately because Dublin is a bit more um, bulletproof in terms of the amount of visitors that come and all that sort of stuff. Is a city tax there not a more reasonable thing to apply as as is in, in many, you know, many people who'd be familiar maybe going to New York or these kind of places where you have your room price and then a city tax is lobbed on top? Well, we we represent restaurants. We re- represent the food element of the of this nine percent VAT rate. Other elements that are in this is accommodation, as you s- said already, uh, tourism attractions, uh, newspapers, hairdressers, and a few other uh, elements also. So. We Are ha- hairdressers come in under hospitality? They're un- in under the 9% uh, reduced rate of okay. that. So so did uh, newspapers as well came, came in under it and, and cinemas. So we're here to advocate on behalf of the restaurant sector. I'm not here to advocate on behalf of the accommodation sector. All right. They're well represented uh, out there at the moment. There is uh, a lot of debate around a city tax yeah. for Dublin. Uh, I think we need to look at that and make sure that an impact stu- study is done on it if the government go down that ro- road with regard to implementation of a city tax. But I'm here to talk about the 9% VAT rate being the right rate of VAT for tourism and hospitality in Ireland. And we shouldn't be lining ourselves up to shoot ourselves in the foot because of competitiveness, Brexit and all the challenges that are coming down the road for businesses in Ireland. Here, here's the thing though, Adrian. Many business sectors in Ireland are vulnerable to currency changes because lots of people, you know, if they if they export or if they import, they're affected. Many are vulnerable to changes because of Brexit. Uh, many of them are subject to competition externally from other countries and all the kind of stuff. So many people would argue that their business is just as vulnerable. We're talking about possibly in this budget having a fiscal space of 300 million in order to fix all the ills of our society. If we brought in even, suppose we didn't go back up to the 11%, even suppose we went up to the the 1% uh, extra, brought you up to 10% fat, there may be an argument about jobs, but there would also be probably about 150 million back into the exchequer. It's a very difficult argument to say that when the fiscal space is so small in the country and maybe your sector is being treated in a different way to other sectors who pay higher rates of VAT. Is that the best use of state resources? Well, I'm 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 not here to defend other sectors. No, no, I know. I'm, but I'm here, I'm here you to take the point that that to give you a, a, a cut in VAT, there is a cost to the exchequer, and there's only certain places that the money can come from. 
Yeah, I, I, I see your point, but I want to advocate this position that the tour operators that send mi- thousands of tourists into Ireland have contracted their rates for 2018 already. So if you're a German tour operator or you're a French tour operator or wherever you're, tour- you're sending tours from, you've negotiated your rates already. So the Irish trade will have to go back out and ta- sit down with them to say, sorry now, but we need to jack up our our price because our government have increased our VAT rate. That sends a very wrong, that sends a, uh, a signal to the the uh, tour operators across Europe that Ireland just can't get its act together. I'm not trying to be... Uh, no, no, I, I hear what you're saying, but but surely what you're saying there is, 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 and you said you didn't want to talk about accommodation, surely nobody has made an agreement about what the cost in a restaurant is going to be next year with, with a tourist in Germany. Certainly there might be bookings for rooms and all where there's been agreement, but I would presume that if you own a, a, a restaurant in, in Balana, mm. y- you know, your prices have not been agreed with anybody in Germany. So that that's bringing it back to accommodation again. Do you take the point that that there are many industries who who also provide employment who are as vulnerable to currency changes and to problems with Brexit and all that kind of thing who are also saying, well, how come one sector of the economy, how come hairdressing and newspapers and restaurants and hotels pay 9% in VAT and I'm paying, it could be 11 or it could be more depending on the sector. That's what I'm paying. That's what I'm up against. And I can see their point uh, quite clearly. What I'm saying is that we're the tourism industry is a is a foreign direct investment. Tourists come in, spend a lot of money, and leave it here in the country. It has when when the country was was going down the tubes, we were the sector that kept our doors open, created the jobs, and gave a lot of Irish people jobs during the recession. Fifth. The, the facts are 54,000 jobs were created bet- between direct and indirect. Um, I think we've done a good job. I think we need to keep our competitiveness as a country and we cannot go back to the 2008, 2007 scenario where we got out of out of out of kilter on our on our on, on our uh, cost uh, to the tourists and our co- on, uh, uh, no, and I cost to the business. I hear. I am slightly confused though, because you say that the two percent VAT decrease from eleven percent to nine percent created fifty four thousand no, jobs. Thirteen and a half. Th- thirteen and a half percent down down yeah. to nine percent. Sorry, created fifty four thousand jobs. Then how come would uh, putting back up the VAT only lose six thousand jobs? Because that is when our economist looks at it. He looks at it in, in today's figures and he looks at the areas that are... So there's been growth in the exactly. sector, is that what you're there saying? There's been okay. growth in the sector. Um, uh, t- uh, one text in here says, Kira, we're very nervous about the possibility of an increase in the 9% VAT rate as we are close to the border and close to the northwest coast. Tourism is vital in this region. Competitiveness is vital. Employment is vital. We will undoubtedly have to lay off staff if this happens and we will have to look at downsizing our business model as a result, which is ridiculous considering tourism figures are on the increase. The only thing I'd say to you about that, Adrian, and we have to just wrap it up here now, is is growth is the changing factor in all this. There is no reason why somebody whose business is growing should have to lay off staff just because of a VAT change, surely. It's the cost of doing business at the moment. We haven't spoken about wage inflation. We haven't spoken about the cost of insurance, the cost of doing business in the country. So VAT is part of a cost of doing business in this country. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a direct tax on our, on our business. And we're, we're here to do our job, maintain jobs and bring more tourists into the country. Okay. 
Fair play. Uh, that is Adrian Cummins, CEO of the Restaurant Association of Ireland, talking about uh, the possible implications of a VAT increase in the sector. And of course, uh, we'll be talking more about the changes possibly coming down the line in the budget over the next week or two. Do stay with us because we're going to be talking about Catalonia and whether or not it mirrors Irish independence. High Noon. This is News Talk. And welcome back to High Noon with Kira Kelly here on News Talk. Do get in touch with us. You can text us at 53106 or tweet us at High Noon NT or indeed tweet me at Kira Kelly Duck. And lots of you are getting in touch. Jim says, when we lower taxes, the country brings in more money, not less. We should enforce the 12% corporation tax rule on all the multinationals who get away with not paying their fair share. I think a lot of people feel that way, Jim. You know, it's the same argument as, as Adrian Cummins was making in a way about, about restaurants. It's that people want to pay less because they're offering employment. And it's that trade off, isn't it, between jobs and people people paying tax and uh, the poor old worker gets caught in the middle, I think, a lot of the time. Now, the Spanish government has confirmed that police will be deployed at polling stations to prevent people from voting in the Catalan independence referendum on October 1st. It's extraordinary, really. The Spanish constitution says that no region of the country has the right to succeed I think I pronounced that right, succeed, to leave, in other words, uh, while the Catalan nationalists say a democratic mandate trumps any other legal mechanism. But is this move in Catalonia all that different to what Ireland did a century ago? To discuss this now, I'm joined on the line by Cuivin de Barra, who's ex- Assistant Professor for Irish History and Culture at Drew University in New Jersey. Cuivin, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, Kira. Uh, do, you, do you get a lot of trouble with your name over in New Jersey? Do they, do they have all kinds of problems saying it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, I've had some very interesting variations that I've heard. No one ever gets it right. <laughs> I almost didn't get it right myself. Listen, this is a very interesting parallel being drawn between what's currently going on in Catalonia and what we did ourselves, what Sinn Féin campaigned on back at uh, the start of the last century. Yeah, I want to think it's it's the, the Spanish government maintains that any vote on, on for for Catalonian independence is illegal, and that's essentially the same language that the British government used against um, the Irish, uh, the, I guess, the Irish independence movement uh, in beginning in 1918. That Sinn Féin had promised in the 1918 general election that they would not send their MPs to Westminster; instead, they would keep them in Dublin um, to form a parliament, which obviously became the first oil. But naturally, the British government said, "Well, that's." an illegal government that's an illegal parliament that has no standing in law. So it's just interesting to see that the, the exact same language is being yeah. used um, in, in Ireland a century ago and, and in Spain today. Do you think that the Spanish government in sending police out into the streets to prevent people from voting at polling stations in Catalonia are going down a dangerous road? I think so, but I, I think they, in some ways they're, they're, they're kind of stuck in a bit of a catch-22 situation. It's interesting, but they said the vote is illegal, but what is interesting is that they didn't simply can't turn around and ignore taking place. Because if a vote did take place, they understand that actually would have, to a lot of people, would have a certain amount of legitimacy if, if the vote went ahead and people voted for Catalonia independence. So it's not enough just to say the vote is illegal. They want to take steps to make sure it simply doesn't happen at all, because then there is some kind of a democratic mandate. That being said, of course, um, I, I think long-term, the possibility that will drive more people towards... Uh, supporting Catalonian independence is likely, and also the potential for, for violence, as we actually saw in Ireland yeah. in, in, in the same situation, um, does begin to, I guess, come into play. 
Yeah, I, I, I think there's a significant risk of violence when there's police preventing people from voting. Voting is an essentially a, a, a it's a peaceful act, although it's it's a, an act of I, I suppose rebellion in some ways. But but this is this is we're getting into very strange territory here. What interests me about this, Cuivin, is is a couple of things. Is one is the polls currently indicate that the majority of people who live in Catalonia would vote to stay within Spain, that, that, that this vote won't be carried. And over 70% of Catalonians want the vote. So if the majority of people want this, if the likelihood is that the vote would fail anyway, the Spanish coming down hard and heavy, is that not kind of likely to push more people towards wanting independence than to do the desired thing of dampening down calls for independence? Yeah, well, and, and, and I think that makes a lot of sense, but I think the Spanish government is looking at from perspective of, of what's actually happened in Scotland, that if they ask the question once, as you said, all polls indicate that most Catalonians would probably vote to remain part of Spain. But what they're afraid of, I think, is if you ask the question once, it can then be asked again in the future, that it would become an issue that, that will simply um, keep coming up until... Until, until, from the Catalonian point of view, the right answer is given. We see something similar in Ireland with referendums. We have, ref- I mean, the, there was a, a, a vote on divorce, uh, or legalizing yeah. divorce, in 1986, and it was it was held again nine years later in 1995. So I think that's certainly an idea that if you ask if you ask the question once, it'll be asked again. And I think in Scotland we've seen that the, by giving the Scottish people the vote in. Um, uh, 2014, it's only heightened the sense of Scottish nationalism and the likelihood that Scotland might eventually leave. And I think that's what the Spanish government is trying to avoid. So, so you think they're afraid of actually legitimising the question? Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because we, exactly because in future, then the the the, the, the Catalonians can point say we already had this vote. Why can't we have it again? And furthermore, there's there are there are also other areas of Spain, Galicia, and the Basque Country where people also feel that maybe um, they should be allowed to secede from from Spain. So. From their point of view, it's it's a minefield of of that will eventually could eventually lead to the dissolution of Spain as we know it. Okay, so 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 quite a lot of fear around that. Has yep. things like Brexit, though, the people voting to leave, uh, you know, uh, a unit that they've been a part of for for such a long period of time that people didn't think that they actually would vote for and all that, has that continued to send shockwaves out politically? As in, are they terrified that despite the f- the polls saying that most Catalonians would like to remain within Spain, that that could easily be upended on the day. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, I mean, the, I suppose if we've learned anything over the last couple of years is that polls aren't worth an awful lot, um, unfortunately. And, but I think what it is, it, it, you mentioned the stat earlier on that over 70% of Catalonians feel that Catalonia has the right to have a vote. And so already you have a lot of people who, I guess, in, in, in principle accept the fact that Catalonia, to an extent, is a separate nation, that it has that right to to, to simply up and leave. So I think it's a combination of maybe not trusting the polls, but even if, if the vote went away of the Spanish government on, on Sunday, if, if they allowed it to go ahead, um, I think they're afraid of they will just keep coming up again. That it wants, it's, it's almost like Pandora's box. Once you open it, you can't simply repack everything back in. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not long back from Catalonia. I was there a couple of weeks ago and you, you can't yeah. walk around the streets without seeing the Catalonian flag hanging off every balcony and window and people wearing the T-shirts. And It's clearly a movement, a nationalist movement in Catalonia that I think does probably mirror how we feel in Ireland, that we, we, we never fully felt that we were part of, of the, the, the British, the Great Britain kind of ink, that that wasn't something that sat with us. Tell us a little bit about the backstory of Catalonia in that, was it always a reluctant uh, member of the Spanish family? 
Um, I think, well, the, 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 the Catalonians um, traced, I guess, the, the, the separatists moving back to the, the mid-1600s and a rebellion against um, royal Spanish rule. Now, whether those people were actually nationalists in the modern sense is, is something to be debated. But under, particularly in the 20th century, under Franco, um, there was very severe repression of Catalonian culture, of, of all aspects of, 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 of Catalonian identity. And the, 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 the fact was actually the only thing that Catalan... Uh, Catalonia, uh, or sorry, that Franco allowed to, to exist was Barcelona because he was a huge Real Madrid fan, so he needed uh, a nemesis, a, a footballing rival. So, so that's, why, that's why Barcelona as well plays a particularly important role in, 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 in Catalonia identity. But I think up until 2010, it seemed like that most um, Catalonians were reasonably content within Spain, but the Spanish government uh, shot down, or sorry, the Spanish Supreme Court shot down a, a, an effort to, to, to grant greater autonomy to Catalonia. And from that moment on, there's been this gradual build of, of, of um, it's increasing discontent with the Spanish state and it, it, its unwillingness to acknowledge some form of, of um, national identity for Catalonia within the wider Spanish state. Yeah. Nationalism is a very interesting thing when, when you think about it. I mean, I think probably we would recognise as Irish people that uh, we see the first doll as, as as legitimate and as the start of the Irish state, irrespective of what mm. the British thought of it. We, we, we don't care. Mm. It, it, it's ours and, yep. and that's what we wanted. And we kept going by political and, and occasionally violent means, look at the 1916 Rising and all that, to try and establish yep. Ireland as separate and as a sovereign state. Spain is obviously concerned about Catalonia wanting to do this and as you say the Basque country and Galicia and, and various other entities as well and there are other parts of Europe in other countries in Europe not, not just Scotland which we've touched on but are, is the constant drive for nationalism always at odds with these big states these big things like Europe like the UK like the Spanish country that exists today pockets of nationalism seem to break out everywhere over time well, is that, that some drive that, in us? No, I, yeah, well, I think, I mean, nationalism, there's a, there's a man called Michael Billig who wrote, who's written a book called Banal Nationalism, and his point is actually nationalism is the most successful ideology in the world, bar none, that every single country in the world is, is, is created along national lines, that we have borders, we have flags, we have anthems, we have official languages. Um, and I think what the mistake sometimes people make is assuming that the nationalists are the people who want to break away from the state, and we're kind of blind oftentimes to the nationalism of the state itself. That the Spanish government also waves flags. The Spanish government also insists that it has this inviolable territory, and and that's as much that's as nationalistic as anything yeah. that the Catalonians are doing. So what we're seeing really is a conflict between two different nationalisms. And and I think what's interesting when you mentioned Ireland, I think it's worth bearing in mind that um, there's still some people in Britain saying uh, there's a woman called Melanie Phillips who wrote an article um, earlier this year in March, and she basically said that Ireland still really is not a real nation; that it was it should have been part of 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 the British Isles. So. Almost a century on, there's in the same way Spanish well, Catalonia is always Spain and, and always will be. There are still some people in Britain who think that really, when push comes to shove, Ireland should have been still part of the UK and 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 isn't really a, a true nation in the way that Britain is. Yeah, fair, fair point. Lots of people getting involved in this. Uh, one texter says, I know seven people who will travel home to Spain in order to vote in favour of independence. And then a couple of other texts, which are quite interesting here. One says, 
Madrid will crush them. And another one that says from Rod uh, in Rathfarnham, the Catalonian issue is more similar to the Confederate States issue, their succession. That was declared illegal and violently put down. Now we still have a USA. I think he's suggesting that perhaps it should be mm. violently put down. But the reality of it is in a yeah. modern society, Madrid crushing them or the idea of violently putting them down, even the idea of putting the police on the polling stations, the difficulty with things like nationalism, that that when we saw it here, until until they executed the nineteen sixteen leaders, people here were only half arsed really about the about the nineteen sixteen mm-hmm. rising. But you know what? The more you try and stamp it out, the more you try and tell people they can't have it and they they aren't you know entitled to their own sovereign state. It seems to actually make people rebel more against it and and want it more. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the difficulty the Spanish government uh, is having, is that, is that the potential for some form of violence um, is increasing day by day. And, and if it does happen, um, the potential, I guess, for martyrs for the Catalonian cause, and, yes. and I think you've drawn a, an interesting equivalent that if, if something like that happened, would that push people over the edge in terms of, 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 of sh- shifting off the fence to becoming uh, strongly in favour of Catalonian nationalism? It's broadly what happened in Ireland, so I think something like that is is, is absolutely um, very possible as well. So I, I think it's going to be fascinating to see what's going to happen on 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 Sunday, and um, when you know the votes meant to go ahead on Sunday, but the Spanish government's obviously doing everything to to stop it, and 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 yet the potential for violence is is absolutely there. It really is, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I'm slightly worried about what's going to happen on Sunday because the, the police, the Spanish police, they they are being deployed to keep people away from these, I suppose rogue polling stations as, as the Spanish would see but people appear 70% of them want this to be determined to vote Yeah and, 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 and I said it, it, it's, it's, it's I, I think I mean if you look at, at, at how Britain handled the question of Scottish independence now the argument would be made that the only reason that Cameron allowed the, the Scottish vote to go ahead is that he really believed there was no chance it would win and I, I think he was genuinely surprised by how close um, the matter ran but it's certainly um, the, what we've seen in Scotland was, was, was has been Largely far more peaceful, um, certainly uh, a very divisive debate, but, but yeah. we didn't see any violence in Scotland as a result. And, 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 and compared, to Span- or compared to Spain, you would have to say that it looks like the, um, Britain has, or the United Kingdom has largely gotten it right, at least in the short term. I mean, long, if the long-term goal is, is, is to keep Scotland, um, it's possible, because as we're seeing with Brexit, already people are saying in Scotland, well, maybe we need to vote again, maybe we need to change our mind now, but it certainly was a, was a much more... Um, peaceful, democratic uh, situation to what, what we're used to in Europe compared to what seems to be unfolding in Spain. Yeah, yeah. My, my thanks there. That is Cuevin de Barra, Assistant Professor for Irish History at uh, Drew University, talking about that, that referendum vote that Spain is trying to stamp out uh, on the 1st of October for Catalonian independence. And we will probably be coming back to that again because it looks like it's going to be trouble brewing there for them. And of course, he mentioned David Cameron allowing the uh, the Scottish referendum because he thought it wouldn't succeed and it didn't, but it was only narrowly defeated, really. Uh, he thought the same on Brexit too, didn't he? Isn't that what he brought that? one in for and uh, that didn't go quite as well. Coming up next, two thirds of us don't know what a funeral costs. We're going to find out how much that is. Stay tuned. High Noon. This is News Talk. And you're very welcome back to High Noon with Kira Kelly here on News Talk. Now, the Irish Examiner did a survey and found out that two out of three people underestimate the cost of funerals. A basic funeral in Ireland costs about €4,000, but that excludes the grave 
and the headstone. However, just 34% of people accurately, roughly speaking, estimated that a funeral with the plot and the headstone would cost over €5,000. So why why don't we know what funerals cost and why haven't we maybe given this a bit of consideration? Because ultimately, everyone's going to need one. Uh, everyone's going to need one for themselves or also for their loved ones. And to discuss this now, I'm joined by David Fanagan, who is director of the Fanagan Group of Funeral Directors. David, you're very welcome to High Noon. Thank you, Kira. Does it surprise you maybe that people are so unaware of what something as absolutely predictable as a funeral costs? I think the survey is very interesting, but the age group and the age profile is really what tells the story. The 20 to 30 somethings, they, they tell you the, what accommodation costs, they tell you what a flight to uh, Greece costs. They're not thinking about funerals. The 50, 60 somethings are people who I would have to think gave a more accurate figure as to what a funeral cost. The figures that you mentioned there, I think it's very important uh, to compare like with like. All funerals comprise two elements. The headstone, by the way, not included. Just rule that out. Headstone, six months. Because it comes down the line. Six months, six years later, or sometimes not at all. So the funeral, the funeral director's charges for his or her own professional time and expertise, administration, coordination of the funeral, the coffin, the care of the body, transportation, removal funeral. That's the funeral director's charges. Okay. And that ca- would come in around four, five, six thousand, depending on the quality of the coffin. The disbursements, the grave purchase, grave opening, newspapers, flowers, feed the organist, feed the soloist, offering to the church, printing of an order of service sheet, that can range anything from 12, 1,500 euro to 20,000 euro. How could it possibly be 20,000 euro? A new grave can cost you in an urban area, no more than a house, anything from more expensive than a rural area, but a new grave can cost you anything from two, 3,000 euro to 16,000 euro. And the places where the graves cost 16,000 euros, this is the likes of sort of uh, Dean's Grange Cemetery and De- these kind of urban city cemeteries. Yeah, Dean's Grange Cemetery is established a long time but is, and then for a number of years, about 20 years, there were no new graves available. A single grave will accommodate three to four burials. In rural Ireland, most people go for a double grave, side by side. So husband and wife can be buried side by side. Single grave can accommodate three to four burials. Dean's Grange opened a cemetery within a cemetery. It's very exclusive, not big. I think it was previously a rose garden. €16,000 to purchase and 900 plus to open. Now... Next That's year. a massive cost. As it is, but the average that would be at the that would be at the the penthouse in yeah, yeah. Uh, in Fifth Avenue end of the spectrum. Uh, and in fairness, if you ever walk around a graveyard, there's always been the the mausoleum type of graves with the crypts and the eagles and the so so people throughout time. Some people have had a very simple grave with a cross, and some people have had massive. Uh, you know, ceremonial sort of yeah. monuments to, to their death. In, interesting, you're, you're stepping into the headstone end of it, but, you, but since you raised the point, I must tell you, down in Arklow and parts of Wicklow and Wexford, the uh, travelling community spend the type of money you've just talked about, 50, 60, 70,000 euro on a headstone. Really? Yeah, but getting back to your original question, funeral costs... Funeral director's charges, I think the largest would be probably the, the selection of the, the type of coffin you want. The disbursements, the money's paid out, that's where the variance is. Can, can, I, can I just ask you, because I think, David, people clearly don't have a clue, uh, more than, than maybe myself, but 
the, the, the variety in terms of costs of coffins, are, do they run to the thousands as well as a oh, coffin? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can, you, you, we saw tragically um, a funeral there, I think it was last year in Francis Street Church, one of these, these crime, uh, these um, gang feuds. But they, they had a, a, um, a casket, a steel casket, um, a crown steel casket. You're talking in the region of 15, 20,000 euro, but the average coffin the average funeral cost in both rural and urban Ireland running anywhere between three and five, six thousand euro. And then you have the disbursements. The money's paid out. The minimum disbursement you can have is for grave opening. If you don't want any flowers, no newspapers, no soloists, no organs, no anything, but you must dispose of the body by burial or cremation. Cremation costs five to six hundred euro. There's a saving. So cremation is much cheaper than a grave, much cheaper than... Uh, Absolutely, well, there's no question about that. But now, what are you going to do with the ashes? Yeah. So, existing family graves in, I'll take Dublin, since we're here, in Glasnevin, Mount Jerome, Deansgrange, that are full, that won't accommodate any more coffins, will take any number of caskets, which are about the size of a shoebox, containing cremated ashes. And the cost of opening that plot, two, three, four hundred euro. Okay, so, so, so the existing so, grave can yes. la- go on and on and on. And bury the ashes of people together. Correct. Is scattering ashes a, a, a popular thing? Do people quite like to do that? It is, but we would certainly caution if we're speaking to a family when they're talking about we want to scatter the ashes on the 18th fairway in the golf club because I could never manage to get my tea, uh, my tea shot down the fairway. When it comes to a birthday, an anniversary or some occasion, where are you going to visit? So we would always recommend, even if you want to scatter a portion of the ashes over your favourite mountain walk out in Dublin Bay, sporting sports area, but there would be some portion of the ashes would be fixed in a place, a garden of remembrance in one of the main cemeteries or somewhere where you could annually, on the occasion of an anniversary, go and if pay you your respects. To, if you Correct. chose to. Other things, obviously, uh, same as anything else, same as fashion and weddings changes, I suppose, as well. There are changes in fashion in, in funerals too. I, I was at one there a year or two ago. The, the coffin was wicker, for example, and that kind of thing. And people have moved now very much more towards embracing different times of things like like humanist uh, funerals and all that. Have you seen a kind of a, a, a I don't know how to like a bespoke movement in funerals coming coming together? The biggest change in Ireland in funerals in the past twenty years has been the loss of control of the Catholic Church over its flock. So the I remember when I started working back in the 70s, the priest decided the removal was at 5.30, the mass at 10, and the family were not involved in the actual funeral liturgy. That has changed utterly and for the better. Firstly, families are now not rushing. There's no need to rush. We have a thing called embalming now, the preservation and care of the body. So you can now bring somebody home. That's that's big. It's We do funerals really well in this country. I actually think we do. And, I, and just from my own personal experience, my mum died in May. And so we've had a funeral relatively recently. Sure. And I do believe we do funerals well a- in, in, in this country. And, and one of the things that... that that we've gone back to a little bit. I don't think that we were, were unusual. Removals and things appear to have gone because I think it's probably a shortage of priests. And my, my mum was obviously having, she was having a Catholic funeral because she, she obviously was a Catholic and all that kind of stuff. But because there was no removal, instead the night before the funeral, we sort of did have a kind of a wake. Now it wasn't, a, it wasn't. They're now calling it the gathering. Yes, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of a, a John B. Keane kind of a wake. It wasn't, it wasn't really like that, but it was 
a coming together of friends and Absolutely. family and a bit of food and, yes. and you know, mum was laid out and, and all Cele- that kind of Celebrating stuff. the life of. And it was remarkably <sighs> uplifting or yeah. something. Yeah. It, was, it, it felt very comforting. In a way that my father died uh, a good few years ago and we didn't have a wake we, and we did have a removal. And it was a different formality thing that I, I actually much preferred the, the kind change of the, the waking the last, thing. The ch- you're absolutely right. The change in the last 10 years, comparing your mother and your late mother and your late father's funeral, in the last 10 years, the removal to the church in the evening has gone down by 90%. Is it a shortage of priests? No. It? No. It's I don't want to go out twice. All right, okay. That's what it is. It's as simple as that. And secondly, as you correctly pointed out, it is, listen, we'd like to meet together at home or if it, it might be an apartment. So you use the funeral director's funeral home, but a place where we can meet and chat from five, from four to six, from five to seven. And then the removal takes place the following morning. So you have the removal and funeral on the Combined, one morning. Yeah. But the, the, the whole way people getting together, talking, telling stories, it is awake. That's exactly, but we're using the word gathering now because wake seems a bit, yeah. Uh, gathering and, and people that, well, they're marching with their feet. And it's not about money. It's not about saving the cost of hiring a hearse or a limousine the previous evening. It's about not wishing to go out twice publicly and shake hands twice. Yeah, no, fair enough. And, and just lastly for you, David, people obviously, you know, it, it is obviously clearly the average cost is, is four, five, six, seven, whatever. I'm sure there are the, the, the 70,000 euro funerals. But for the average family, I, I think we did spend about six or six yeah, and a half thousand euros right. in a family. And it was and it was it wasn't a bells and whistles kind of thing. It was a very and we, we, we had a grave already from my dad. So so that's that's the kind of cost. Does it come as a shock? Do people have the money in their back pocket? Do people have to get a loan? What do most people do to finance no, it? I think that survey it's a bit also, of a land. I think that survey also showed that the majority of people, yeah, I think I forget the figure, somewhere 40, 40 to 50% actually had the money ring-fenced for the funeral. We get one, two, three calls a week from family, from elderly people uh, and not so elderly saying listen I just want a rough idea how much do I need to ring fence and put in my heavenly account in the bank or the post office or the building society and the money is and it's we don't want to land this on our children yeah. who've got mortgages and school fees the majority of people have money put by for their funeral it doesn't come as a shock the young people who thought their employer or funerals cost uh, a very small amount they're not the, t- the market that know about it's the elderly people you have to the elderly people very know. careful talking about the market I'm sure David but but yeah no I, I take your point oh, entirely absolutely. look, look you, know, you know what it's a very interesting thing because we don't talk about it enough you don't hear enough of this stuff we're talking about more and more was, more people are, when I meet them it's a certainty in fairness death and taxes absolutely. to believe you me they're we both t- there we talked about taxes earlier we're hitting all the boxes listen my sincere thanks that is David Fanagan from Fanagan uh, Funeral Directors and if you haven't thought about it maybe you should think about it because you know what life is very short and you don't live forever lots of you getting in touch on funerals hi Kira. this is from Liam uh, why can't we move towards the American style of graveyard i.e. lawns with very simple headstones far easier to manage and less expense for all well, that may we, happen we, we have those here. do we okay Absolutely. okay uh, yes, we have. okay and uh, another one here says my mother died in the UK cremation coffin flowers uh, all came to £3,000 funerals over here are money pits uh, when people are at their most vulnerable and I suppose that's true too but anyway anyway we're moving on to something else now that is nothing funereal at all about it. I am joined now by Jess Kelly, who is, of course, News Talk's technology correspondent, because 
Twitter has doubled the character limit of tweets to 280 in a surprise move yesterday. But not every Twitter user will be able to use the new limit just yet. Twitter is rolling out these long tweets as a feature to selected accounts as a kind of a test. Are you a member of the Twitter Atty? How do you feel about it? Uh, do you think this is a good idea? Is it a bad idea? My favourite tweet on all of this this morning was from Stephen Colbert in the States and he said, and in one stroke, Twitter has doubled the complexity of our nation's foreign policy. And to discuss this is Jess Kelly. Hello. Jess, what do you think of this? Well, I'm not surprised by it, first and foremost, because every few months, the different social media companies, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, try out new features. Some, you know, very often here in Ireland, uh, that the Facebook users get to test these features because they have the HQ here, so it makes it easy for us to try things and give feedback. This is the first time Twitter's done something on this scale, uh, whereby they have rolled it out to random users. Up until this point, when they've tried things out, it's been a select group of people. So it's, you know, been either, uh, you know, Twitter staff or journalists or tech journalists alone what they've done instead of targeting people is just pick people at random and uh, given them the access to the 280 characters and I have never seen such a hoopla for want of a better word on Twitter about something so ridiculous in all my time I have to say part of my cynical brain says do they just do this kind of thing just to get a bit of notice just to kind of reinvent the platform so that we talk about it. It's the tech equivalent of going teacher, 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 teacher. It's the same thing. It's like looking for attention. It's looking to people, for people to engage in it a little bit more. So the, the thinking behind it and the, the reason why the text, the, tech, uh, the text limit on Twitter was 140 characters up until this point was because it was to go in, in line with text messages. So text messages were 160 characters back in the day. And so Twitter thought that's a good round figure. So let's just bring it down to 140. And it worked fine. There were always people who, and there still are people to this day, who don't have the new um, limit, who tweet threads. They might be like seven or eight different tweets, but they're all connected. It's very easy to follow. There are people, I've done it myself, if you've got something longer to say, you write a note on your phone, screenshot it and tweet it as an image. You can send links. I, I... it doesn't surprise me that they've increased the limit and they're testing this out, but I don't necessarily think it was a necessity. Um, so people now can tweet longer, but the ironic thing, and it's just so, it's just ridiculous. The first tweet that Jack Dorsey, the uh, founder of Twitter, tweeted with at the two... Jack. At Jack with the 280 limit. He also tweeted a link. So even he couldn't say enough in the 280 characters. He wanted to say more. So unless you're going to be able to, you know, have an unlimited tw- uh, character count on Twitter... Uh, you're always going to have someone who's unhappy. My favourite tweet about this, I saw from a woman who who's tweeting, uh, she was in a conversation with somebody who works in Twitter going, you know, I don't think my brain can comprehend or could deal with the 280 characters. And he tweeted back going, it's about 50 words. You'll be okay. I believe in you. You can read the 50 words. It'll be grand. But do we want to read it? Because I have to say, my response to it was, oh God, double the drivel. Do you know what I mean? Because, yeah. and, 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 and you know, I put my hands up. I'm a tweeter. I'm not somebody who kind of goes, oh no, I don't do social media. I do loads of social media. Yeah. And, I, I, and you're I, great at it. You're guest. Well, I don't know about that. But but I, I'm on Twitter. Uh, yeah. At Kira Kelly Doc, by the way. Get but the I, I, I am on Twitter a lot. But, but a lot of it is either aggro or white noise or whatever. And giving people a bigger platform yeah. to, to kind of talk at you at you um, is I don't know how I feel about it except for I'm kind see, of going oh I'm tired you see okay so there's a few different things there so I completely agree with you you don't want to be giving more space for trolls to troll but if someone's going to troll you they're going to do it across 57 tweets anyway so good luck to them <laughs> goodbye my big thing with this is that we're at the point of data overload if I look at my phone now I probably have 540 unread emails 45 unread texts 7 group chats that I've muted on WhatsApp Instagram comments the whole shebang you is mean on you, the you've muted our time. group chat I, I did yes I was wondering why 
just wondering why you never reply. You're gone. But like, it's all of this stuff that we're constantly being contacted. And I just feel what I loved about Twitter was in 140 characters, I know what you're on about. Thanks very much. Good luck. Goodbye. I have to say, I agree with you. The, the beauty of Twitter to me was the brevity. The fact that you, it, it's, it's a line on something as opposed to a, a treatise. An essay. Do you, know what I mean? yeah. you don't need to read Ulysses every time you open your app. But the thing is, again, 280 characters isn't the end of the world. My thing is that it looks so messy. It does, it kind of ruins, because only certain people can do it. Um, the people who are using the 280 characters now it, it's it's that bit longer. So say, for example, if you're reading Twitter on your app, you can only read two or three of the 280 character tweets at the one time, as opposed to maybe getting five or six of the shorter tweets. Then again, you know, only 9%, this is a, this is a true fact, as opposed to a false fact, but uh, only 9% <laughs> of Twitter users ever hit the wall of the 140 characters. People have gotten used to, you know, being saying and snappy quick. things yeah. yeah and again there was a great somebody uh, very cleverly on Twitter took uh, the at Jack tweet about the new changes and cut it down and basically he did an edited version of what he was trying to say but fit it into the 140 characters showing that there was no real need for the 280 so I don't know there I, wasn't much call for this no but I didn't hear anyone saying double the tweets there was a call actually there has been a call online for an edit button I on would tweets. love an edit button so I interviewed Jack Dorsey earlier this year which is a little bit of a name drop a day or it's <laughs> the one time I've ever had like that to do but anyway uh, I spoke to him and I said to him you know when are we going to get the edit button and he kind of looked like oh this question again I was like yeah and he was saying that for every one person who wants the edit button there's about seven who doesn't want the edit button so there's this thing of you know just it's the purity of it and you know so so what if you've got a typo or whatever and you know you can delete the tweet or you can just you know post it again and say look I'm human I made a mistake that was his take on that but he said the amount of feedback that they get on the most random things in the world like should they change the favourite from a heart to a star like all these ridiculous things that you just think who has time in their day to worry about this if this is the only thing you've got to complain about in your day good luck you have reminded me that there was a huge outcry when they changed the star to the heart people said I don't want to be hearting some randomer I don't know I just want to be starring them. Look, we will probably hear more about Twitter when they reinvent themselves again sometime mm-hmm. soon and I do think they probably do it just for the, the chats that we're now having but my thanks to Jess Kelly for, for talking to us about this and uh, I, I think I'm going to try and stay within the 140 things because I think I'm already too... You're old school, Kira. I am old school yeah. and I like it. Um, I am afraid that's all we have time for today. Sean Moncrief is up next. My thanks today to Michael Quilligan on sound, to Alex Russo, Kira Courtney and Siobhan MacDonald producing and of course Mark Simpson editing but from me, Kira, have a great day and we'll see you tomorrow at high noon.